of Isaiah, the 64th chapter, and I will read the entire chapter. Let us hear the very word of God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did off some things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Who remembers you in your ways? You indeed, you are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter, and all we are the works of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where your, our fathers praised you is burned up with fire, and all your, our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? May the Lord grant us wisdom and understanding. For our scripture lesson, let's turn now to Matthew 4. And five, beginning with the 23rd verse of Matthew 4, then I will read to the third verse of Matthew 5. Let's hear now the holy word of God. And Jesus went out, went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here ends this portion of God's word. Let's bow our heads for prayer to understand it. 
Father, as we continue to seek humility, it's, it's not for the sake of humility as though it would qualify us for riches in heaven in itself. The humility we are seeking is the mind of Christ. And so, O Lord, we pray that this first principle of the mind of Christ may be understood, absorbed into our understanding, and lived in our lives. Teach us, O Lord, how to be poor in spirit. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've been studying humility now, a subject about which very little has been written recently, a subject that people don't generally like to hear very much. But we saw the necessity of humility, initially for the necessity for true faith, as it was exemplified by the humble centurion. He saw the necessity of humility. Also, we saw it in the effectual prayers of Jacob, as he was demonstrating how he recognized how unable he was to confront the evil that he thought he was about to face in Esau. Prayers that God respects are hearts that indeed are humble. And so we went on then and we observed how love needs humility, the necessity of humility for love. For love seeks not its own, said Paul. We address the tongue when it is driven by the pride of hell. And we even learned how we could best love ourselves when we humble our heart and life. Today, we're ready to examine now the first of the series on the nature of humility. The nature of humility itself. As I said before, humility is a subject that has received very little concentrated attention these days. How often we see advertised in churches great conferences for promoting a higher life or conferences to experience the greater power of Jesus. And so many books tell us how we can have the power to reimagine ourselves to prosperity and success, to speak the word, to be healed, to become wealthy. But who ever heard of a, a conference for promoting the lowly life? Or whoever read a recent publication teaching us how to empty our spirit, empty it of self-confidence, empty it of self-importance, and in the face of all that Robert Schuller taught, empty it of self-esteem. Why don't they teach us how to give back our Esteem to Christ. Give him our ego. Give back our talents to his disposal. Open our hearts to be exposed for what they are in his eyes. It's the lowly life, not, not our will, our talents, and, and all that we have. It's the lowly life, not the victorious life. That is the first principle of Christian living. Do you hear me? And that is why the first words Jesus said in his great Sermon on the Mount is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
how these opening words must have stunned the people. But in those words lie the first principle of the Christian heart, emptiness. And that is the nature of humility, emptiness. It is the mind of Christ who emptied himself. But who can live up to the mind of Christ? When I see myself in the light of Christ, the first thing I noticed is my spiritual deficiency to be like him. Well, I give you a word of confidence. It's to those who feel that they are too spiritually impoverished to be like Jesus that he's really addressing first. It's those who recognize their deficiency that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's ask some questions about truly being poor in spirit and how, in fact, they are the richest of all. The first question we need to ask is, who are not the poor in spirit? And the second is the reverse. Who are the truly poor in spirit? And then finally, how are the poor in spirit made rich? Or how are they blessed? So first of all, who are the poor in spirit? There's a lot of confusion going about in regard to that. Jesus isn't singling out poor people right up front. You need to know that. Poor people are not necessarily poor in spirit. He didn't say blessed in spirit are the poor. James 2 verse 5, it says that God does seem to uh, link uh, his highest blessings with the oppressed and with the afflicted and the needy. But that doesn't make that them necessarily poor in spirit. Latin American liberation theology capitalized on that concept that God has special esteem for the fatherless and the widow. And then comes along the Black Lives Matter movement, which exploited that system of thought, claiming that because they have been made to be poor by the white man's government, They should inherit the government themselves by tearing down America's prosperity and history. Poverty does not generate spirituality. Let's say that right offhand. As we see, the Black Lives Matter definitely don't reveal to us poverty of spirit at all, but arrogance and rebellion and willfulness and demand and hatred and judgment. Jesus himself The Son of God resisted the temptation to turn his messianic work into a social program right from the very start uh, when he was tempted in the wilderness. Command the stones to be made bread. Aha, if he did that for everybody, wouldn't that be great? Then he comes along and he he gives people, 5,000 people, fed with five loaves and two fishes. But as soon as they decided to make use of that for the sake of the government and social purposes, he distanced himself and hid When he was interrogated by Pilate, whether he was the king of the Jews, Jesus made it very clear, my kingdom is not of this world. And so it wasn't a social program. 
It wasn't something that is, assumes that blessed in spirit are the poor. Neither is poor in spirit those who are weak-hearted people in the world either. And sometimes we, we have special sympathy or empathy for people who are faint and weak-hearted. Well, Jesus did not say, blessed are the poor-spirited, those with inferiority complex, the sad-hearted who are always demeaning themselves. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's very important. This, the word he uses, poor in spirit, is pneumatai or pneumati. And it means spirit as opposed to emotions or mind. So it's a spiritual thing, not an attitudinal thing. And Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who live austere lives, who make themselves poor, who deprive themselves, abuse themselves, afflict, inflict upon themselves injury for, for divine merit. And that's, that's the danger of the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance for someone who confesses a sin before the priest. Then he's ordered by the priest to do something that is painful or very inconvenient, like, say, 100 Hail Marys and 25 Our Fathers. Uh, I, I, I'll be exhausted. Well, as if that's going to earn you righteousness or make you rich in spirit. Martin Luther had to learn that who endured self-afflicted pain and hunger and sleeplessness until he discovered that justification comes through faith alone, not through self-imposed austere living. These are all attempts to attain spiritual blessing by works of the flesh, and it is not those that Jesus is blessing because those who live by works of the flesh thinking that they can do something also think that they can contribute something to their spiritual wealth and that it depends upon them to accomplish it. A person who is poor in spirit is truly poor in spirit, has no hope in anything that he can do, any position that he can take in this world. So let's look then by comparison to who are truly poor in spirit. Those who are truly poor in spirit know three things about themselves, three things about themselves that the world does not know. First, they know how they are poor. How are they poor? They are impoverished in respect of spiritual things. It is the spirit that they understand is poor. They see their spirits before God, the Holy Spirit, and measured in heaven's spiritual standards. They see themselves as having been weighed in the balances and found wanting. They are not innocent in their attitudes. Their thoughts are not pure. They can't consistently resist temptations. They know this about themselves. As Isaiah, before the majesty of the Lord in the temple, when the whole temple was filled with smoke and the anger of the Lord and the seraphim were singing, holy, 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 he says, I'm undone. Why? Why is, did he feel so undone? Because he said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Uncleanness. They know how they are poor. Or Peter, on the other hand, when he saw the multitude of fishes that he pulled up in his nets, 
so that the nets were breaking. He remembers his attitude of having fish all night. And when Jesus said, cast your net over, he said, no way. I've been fishing all night. He said, try the other side. He did. And the boat began to sink because of the weight of the fishes. And what was Peter's response? Okay, I'm sorry. I was wrong, okay? No. No. That's what something you might hear from us. What Peter said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Luke 5, 8. He is like the tax collector who beat himself and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They know how they are poor. That's the first thing that truly poor in spirit know about themselves. The second thing they know about themselves is they know how poor they are. First, they know how they are poor, Now they know how poor they are. They're conscious of having absolutely nothing to address their spiritual poverty. Now the word poor has two Greek words. One is penis and the other is tokos. Penis is a person who life is a struggle. It's the reverse of affluence. It's like the widow who had two coins left to put in the offering. But tokus means abject poverty. Possessing nothing. Acute destitution. Like in Luke 16 when Jesus spoke the parable or the story of the, of the, uh, the beggar named Lazarus. Who sat at the gate of the rich man. And the Bible tells us that the dogs came and licked his sores and that he ate the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He was absolutely, totally, completely impoverished. And he died. That is the word that Jesus uses of this beatitude, poor. It's not the successful, not the talented, or the esteemed, heroic, popular, or even the righteous that Jesus blesses here. It's not the soldier, not the controller, not the zealot, or the religious leader that Jesus is blessing. In fact, those whom Jesus blesses as we read into his ministry is the prostitute, the drug addict, the adulterer the practicing homosexual, who see themselves in the light of God's holy laws. They are more suited to enter into the kingdom of God because they know how poor they are. We must file for bankruptcy before God. We cannot pay what we owe to God. We can't mend what is broken. We can't medicate our our infected, oozing wounds or offer any terms for which the Creator would make peace with us. We have abject poverty spiritually. That's how poor we are. And those who are poor in spirit, thirdly, know what is their only recourse. They know how they are poor, they know how poor they are, and they know what is their only recourse. While those who are worldly will respond to their guilt by self-justification and rationalization, cover-ups and evasion, the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit will look to the ruler of heaven alone to supply what is needed 
It's interesting. It seems every Sunday I, I, I read something from Jeremiah Burroughs that is applicable to the message. Reading this morning, he talks about those who are truly contented. And he, he points out that if you look at the worldly man, if he is abused, if he is spoken against, if he loses anything, he retorts, he responds in anger, abusive speech, or even violence, or desperation. But the child of God, when abused or abjects suffering uh, harm or loss, he focuses on what his real riches are that can never be taken away. And who is the giver, who is faithful and never lets us lose him. He finds peace, even in the midst of turmoil. And so it is those who are truly poor in spirit know what is their only recourse. We cannot, what we can acquire for ourselves, only God can provide, and that's righteousness. Only God can give us that which the cross of Jesus Christ purchased for us. That is forgiveness of sins. You see, God wants nothing from us but our love and faith. For it can never be satisfactory what we would give to God of our own. Anything we would pay is confederate, and it only mocks his great grace and glory. And so that is who are the truly poor in spirit. And finally, the third question is, how are the poor in spirit rich? How are they blessed? Two ways that's spoken of here. The first focuses on the word blessed. The second is the kingdom of heaven, and that's the two ways that they are blessed. That's the two ways they are rich. They are rich, first of all, in the blessing of Jesus Christ. When he says blessed are, let's take a little time here and consider exactly what it is. What does it mean to receive the blessing of Christ? Well, blessing, of course, we understand, includes happiness the Greek word is makaroi, and that's blessed or happy. In English, the original word is bliss, which was transformed into blessed. Bliss means joyful, and so it turned into the word blessed. So we think of it as an emotional happiness. But, but actually, if it's limited to only emotional happiness, then it's dependent upon circumstances. And that's not the way Jesus is meaning the word blessed. What would, make, what would make an American happy? This question was asked some time ago of 52,000 Americans in psychology today. And here were some of the answers. What would make you happy? Recognition and success. Friends and social life. Having a good job. Being in love. Sex. Being married. That's what would make you happy, they wrote. There's a popular idea, you say, you see, that when circumstances are right, I'll be happy. Isn't that the way we tend to think? This is known as the when-then thinking. It goes something like this. When I get married, 
then I'll be happy. When I lose 20 pounds, then I'll be happy. When I win the lottery, then I'll be happy. There's no question that the spiritually blessed are ordinarily emotionally happy, but not everyone who feels happy is spiritually well off, nor are those who are spiritually blessed always laughing. So we talk about, well, what does Jesus mean then by blessed? What does Jesus mean by happy? Well, we're looking for the mind of Christ. How was Jesus happy? Isaiah 53, 3 says uh, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There is no record of Jesus laughing, yet Jesus speaks of himself as a man of joy and peace, doesn't he? In John 15, 11, that my joy may abide in you. Wow. In John 14, 27, my peace I give to you. Our Lord's happiness is based on the assurance of the abiding presence of God with him. How was he always contented? How was he never stressed out? Because he said, I am not alone. John 8, 29, I am not alone. And therefore, we see in Jesus the picture of the serenity and confidence and satisfaction that accompanies those who know that they are under the, um, under the wing of the Almighty that they are in the presence of God, that God is with them. In this regard, Jesus was supremely happy. And this too could be our blessedness too, that sense of God's good pleasure, the assurance that in God I am well off. Ponder that. Yeah, right, in the situation. Freeze the frame. What is your situation in life today? What are you dealing with? What is foremost in your mind and what concerns you most? Now look and see. You are in the presence of God. Whatever it is that you are in this point of life, you may be happy. You freeze frame another picture from the time past. And there, put God in the picture. And you may be happy and understand now how he brought you through that to this point. And now it's an ongoing work that God is doing in our lives. That gives us a joy and a peace and a happiness, doesn't it not? Well, that is the blessing here that Jesus is speaking of. And that's the first blessing And that's the first way they are rich. They are rich on the inside. They are rich in the state of mind that they are in. They have something that the wealthiest man in the world couldn't believe or even understand. We are so well off. We are blessed. And the second way we are made rich and blessed is that we receive the kingdom of heaven. We receive the kingdom of heaven. It's more than a state of mind, you see. There are specific blessings that he promises in his Beatitudes. And what then specifically is he promising the poor in spirit? He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
It was possessive there, possessive. The word theirs, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's emphatic in the Greek. So yeah, you could put an underline there or put it in bold. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's personally given particularly to them. Not them in, among others, but particularly to those who are poor in spirit. It's given to them, and it's given to them now. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right now, you are receiving from the Holy Spirit a knowledge and understanding of heaven, that it is yours. That it is yours now. Not when after you die or not when Jesus comes in his glory. You will receive the greater fold, hundredfold what you have now. But even now, the kingdom of heaven is yours. You say, okay, um, what do you mean by the kingdom of heaven then? You know, we like to think of the kingdom of heaven as the great Jerusalem coming down, the city of gold, and that's the kingdom of heaven. And someday it will happen, but not now. That's a long way off. I'm here now where I am, and I'm in a miserable situation. How is it that I'm so blessed with the kingdom of heaven? Well, you need to know what the kingdom of heaven is. By the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is meaning, speaking of God's rule over his people's hearts and in their lives. The kingdom of heaven has a king, and that king is Jesus Christ. And that king is all sovereign, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to that king. And I am personally under the rule of that king. I am a citizen of that kingdom. And with it then, with this rule, is the experience of the glory and the peace and holiness and the communion and communion with Jesus Christ. That's the character of the kingdom of heaven, unlike any other kingdom, any other government. The closest we can get to the president is to watch him on TV. If some, by some chance we should go to Washington, D.C. and see the inauguration or hear him speak, then he's way up there and I'm way down here, but it's nothing. I know the king, and the king knows me. And you know what that king has? He has spiritual, eternal blessings that come with his very presence just like light comes with the sun you get under the sun you receive that light so i am in the presence of jesus and all his light and his fullness the fullness of the love of christ himself bathes my soul now and that makes me happy Paul in Romans 14, 17 summarized it as righteousness, peace, and joy. All right? How are you happy? Righteousness. That's a gift from Christ that appeases my conscience. So I'm not tormented by guilt and darkness. Peace is the second characteristic that Paul lists there. That's the same peace that is Christ's peace a peace that he had even while he was preparing to go to the cross. A peace that sets your heart at ease. That's why it passes all understanding. Paul says, be anxious over nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes understanding 
It will keep your heart. So the child during a thunderstorm is terrified and the child runs to his mom and throws his arms around her and she enfolds him in her arms. And even while the lightning strikes and the thunder rolls, the child is at ease. That's the peace that Jesus speaks of and that's the element of the kingdom of heaven. And joy, he speaks of joy as part of the kingdom. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that is real. It's a gift that puts a smile on your lips. These are the happy souls because they are experiencing even now a foretaste of the riches of heaven. And when they depart this life, they will be all enhanced a hundredfold from what even the best moments of your life today experience. So how can we become truly poor in spirit? Well, for that answer, have you asked that question? I'm asking it, but uh, maybe that question hasn't entered your mind. Let me challenge you. Do you know how to become poor in spirit? You may know how to become poor financially. You may know how to become poor in, in property. But do you know how to become poor in spirit? I turn you to Jesus Christ. We talked about taking on the mind of Christ. Well, this is what he says in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest to your souls. I could preach a whole separate sermon on how indeed to become poor in spirit, but let me just summarize very quickly. First of all, study Christ. He said, learn of me. Read from the Gospels often and, and look at this man, God, God, man, God Almighty, the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity who became a bondservant. Learn how he became poor in spirit in his attitude and in assuming his ministry, always walking here and there, going wherever the need is. For he says, I am meek and lowly of heart. Fix your eyes on Christ and humility will begin to grow within you. Second, not only study Christ, but submit to Christ. He said, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest unto your souls. The yoke is what we need. We need to be connected with him and receive from him whatever he gives to us. I talked about the wonderful experiences of receiving the kingdom of heaven that make us so happy. But what about the real life experiences in this ugly world, this dark planet? Then what? This is no less under the absolute authority and dominion of Jesus Christ. And since we are citizens in his kingdom and he is our king, what he ordains for us is for our good, but can we submit? You can't if you're not poor in spirit. But if you would be poor in spirit, you must submit. This is a hard lesson for me and Cindy right now. Okay, We're not very happy about our water situation. 
And if we seem a little stressed out, a little short-tempered, I'm especially vulnerable to that. I have no excuse. I say you might understand, but if I do, I have no excuse, you see. Because I need to learn to submit as well. In the transcript, The Art of Mental Prayer, someone wrote these words. We desire to be humble, but we want to pick and choose the means of becoming so for ourselves, which only means that our supposed humility is nothing else but self in a new disguise. The only sure way of becoming humble is the training of ourselves to say, Deo gratia, thanks be to God. For the daily inconveniences, difficulties, slights, unpleasant tasks, imperfections and failures, reproofs, etc. The acceptance of all those things which go against the grain. Unquote. So in conclusion, let's, let me provoke you to ask yourself some questions First, can I receive correction graciously? Or do I complain about how someone made me feel? Do I brood over past hurts and offenses? Do I think of myself as the winner if I put somebody else down in an argument? Do I submit to changes and things that disrupt my state of well-being? And there are many other questions we might ask that would expose our souls. And there are hard questions, I know. They may make us feel poorly of ourselves. Yet it is that very sense of inner poverty that begins the process of becoming rich, of becoming blessed slash happy, of becoming active citizens in the kingdom of God as its ruler and governor and king rules in my heart. So if you feel unworthy to emulate the mind of Christ, I urge you to take heart, recognize it's a first step in becoming poor in spirit. And that classifies us among the richest people on earth. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our King, take control of our hearts and make us more like yourself because we can't do it ourselves. We hear your word and your spirit moves our hearts, but just by coming to services or just by doing this or that, we, we tend to substitute works for faith. Forgive us, O Lord, and help us recognize that it is indeed almost seemingly a desperate journey to submit to you, to study you. I pray that you will reveal yourself to our hearts just as you are. And then help us, I pray. Help us to help one another, I ask, to become truly poor in spirit. Help us to empty our hearts, we ask, under all 
circumstances. I pray that we might find in that the wonderful consolation of the likeness of Christ. And it is in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.